How does it feel to find out you're wrong? That was a little heavy out of the gate. Let me ease into it. Good morning. Glad you're here. How does it feel to find out that you're wrong? It feels bad, people tell me. But it does feel bad. We don't want to be wrong. It activates something inside of us. We don't want to be exposed as incomplete, as needing anything, as being fragile, fallible. It's pride, right? Consider this, there are degrees to how bad it feels when we're wrong. If you're at trivia night and you thought Titanic won 12 Oscars, but it turns out it was 11, it's not so bad, right? But when your spouse tells you that they feel overwhelmed with the kids and you keep going out with your friends and they feel abandoned, that feels quite a bit worse. And maybe that's obvious. One thing is important and one thing's not, but, but why? In 2015, my wife and I moved from an apartment to a house and we needed to rent a U-Haul. So we go to the place and uh, I'm filling out the paperwork and the lady behind the counter says, uh, sir, do you have a driver's license that's not expired? <laughs> I, I wanna say yes, but that you're asking me this question makes me think that no, I, I don't. <laughs> and I didn't, my driver's license had expired nine months ago. We'd moved and there was mail forwarding, something went wrong, it wasn't, I'm sure it wasn't my fault, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a driver's license. And did you know, in the state of Missouri, if your driver's license has been expired more than six months, it's kind of like you never had one, and you have to retake the driver's test. Yes, I did not know that either. So one Saturday morning, myself and a dozen 15-year-olds took the driver's test here in St. Charles. It was harder than the one where I was from. Um, and I didn't like this idea because I'm an adult and I, I know how to drive, right? And somebody's gonna tell me if I know how to drive or not, this is uncomfortable. And you know, I don't really remember that much about it. I, I drove here this morning, so I guess it went okay. But I do remember pulling up to a stop sign and the instructor says, oh, you kind of rolled through that stop sign. And of course, I know what I'm doing. So I told him, well, there's tall grass. And I couldn't see, it wasn't safe. And he was unfazed by that. And he said, well, then stop at the stop sign and then roll forward until you can see. Fair enough. I don't know about you, but I don't particularly care if there are things I don't know about the movie Titanic. And even being a good driver, it's important. But when it's pointed out to me that I could be a better driver, that isn't generate a crisis for me. I can even learn from that and grow. But when I haven't lived up to being a husband or a father or a friend, that feels very bad. I don't like it. I get defensive. It's no longer just that I've got a wrong idea or I've made a mistake or not enough experience. It feels like there's something wrong with me, with who I am. But that's kind of upside down, is it? I mean, shouldn't realizing I'm being a poor husband be of more benefit to me than increasing my trivia knowledge? Shouldn't I be happy to find out so that I can do something about it? I mean, people go to trivia nights and find out how wrong they are and they call it a great time. 
people go to marriage counseling and find out how wrong they are, it's not the same kind of experience, right? When we're in the wrong about something in which we ground our identity, we feel like we're worthless. We're not worthless. I mean, maybe if it's really grim, but at least worth a little less. We derive our worth from our identities. And our identities tend to be performance-based. I get the worth from my father identity when my kids are well-behaved and do well in school and get good jobs. I get the worth from my husband identity if my wife is happy and my marriage is harmonious, or better yet, people see my marriage as harmonious. If all of those things are true, then I'm a great husband and a great father and therefore a great person. Worthy. You've probably realized that this system of reckoning your worth, it, it doesn't really work. In fact, it's self-defeating. The more worth I'm trying to extract from a performance-based identity, the more resistant I get to hearing that I don't stack up. I get discouraged. It collapses. Jesus talks about repentance. In fact, in Matthew... After Jesus is baptized and is tested in the wilderness, the, the beginning of his public ministry, it's the first word out of his mouth. Matthew 4, 17, repeat, re repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is repenting? Well, it's a response to finding out that you're in the wrong. But not the sulking, miserable, withdrawing response. It's the taking it to heart and doing something different response. The Hebrew word means something like return or turn around. You're going the wrong way. The Greek word, which Matthew uses here, means a thought that changes you. And you'll see, if you read the rest of Matthew, that Jesus takes us not to marriage counseling, but to being a human counseling, where we find out a lot of things we didn't know, a lot of things that we're wrong about. And it's not movie trivia. It's how we treat people how we use money and sex and power, areas of our life that we don't want to be wrong about because of pride, because our identity is in those things. Just a few verses later in Matthew, we're told, and Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So finding out how wrong we are and repenting because the kingdom is here is good news. But why doesn't it feel like good news? It sounds like facing all the ways I feel less worthy. Jesus, don't you know about the worth from performance-based identity self-collapse problem? Maybe I'll take on the expert repenter identity. I'll repent so much about so many things. How much is enough, Jesus? That's not the good news either. You haven't said anything about Jonah yet, someone is thinking. <laughs> Fair enough. We're going to look at Jonah, chapter 2 and 3, where Jonah witnesses two dramatic, miraculous even, demonstrations of God's power and mercy and has entirely different, pretty much opposite reactions to them. 
And I think if we examine the difference between these reactions, we'll discover how Jonah's identity drives those reactions and that there is good news for our collapse problem. But before we get back to Jonah's story, let's recap where we are in the narrative of the Bible. God creates the world and everything in it and installs humanity, all people, as his image on the earth. Representatives, symbols, reflections of his creative power and care for life. And humanity is to continue God's creative work by bringing order and flourishing to the world. But we're not satisfied to steward this place. We want to run it. We want the big chair. We decide that we know what's best for us. This makes a mess of things. But God is patient and merciful, and he finds a way. He selects a single family, Abraham's, through which he promises to bring blessing and reconciliation between humanity and himself. When Abraham's descendants become a nation, Israel, he makes a covenant with them and gives them a law to live by, imparting his wisdom so that they could live set apart from the people around them. And this is not just for the benefit of Israel. We're told in Deuteronomy 4 that this law is given so that their neighbors will say, what other nation has a God so near to them as the Lord? What other nation has statutes and ordinances as just as this one? Israel is to be a testament to the world of the wisdom and power of God. But instead of reflecting God, Israel starts to look like the people they are meant to be set apart from people who don't know God. If you were with us at our scripture reading of Judges a few weeks ago, you saw that things get very bad indeed. Two weeks from now, we'll read Ruth and 1 Samuel, and we'll see that God is still patient, still merciful, and still has a plan. He appoints a king, someone who can lead the people to God's heart. But the kings fail too. And Israel fractures into north and south. In the north, a king rises named Jeroboam II. The book of 2 Kings describes his reign as a time when people suffered and there was no one to help them. It's not a great approval rating. But even while Jeroboam was unfaithful, God used him to push back those who would destroy Israel and to restore its borders. Why? Because God is patient and merciful and had promised not to let them be destroyed. In fact, this victory for Israel was prophesied by none other, none other than Jonah, son of Amittai, the same Jonah who was given another message, this time for Nineveh, the capital of Israel's enemy, and the Jonah who ran the other way. When we last saw Jonah, where was he? In a fish. In a fish. Is this a good thing? Well, what happens to people that are eaten by fish? They die. Yes, they die. And in Jonah's day, despite uh, having many you know, modern advancements that we have uh, not having those advancements, they had a robust understanding of what happens to people who are swallowed by animals. But like much of the rest of the book of Jonah, what we expect to happen doesn't. And Jonah finds himself not dead. Amazingly, miraculously, not dead. 
And he is so overjoyed that he composes a poem on the spot, a prayer of thanksgiving. Jonah 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave. Jonah recognizes that he was done for. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed forever upon me. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah has experienced God's mercy in a dramatic way. Mercy is not receiving the penalty for your actions. If Jonah had drowned, no one would have said, well, that was bad luck. He ran from God. He told the sailors to throw him overboard. He put himself in a situation that should have destroyed him. But God saved him. Jonah has been delivered from death, and he sees that mercy from God. But he doesn't yet see another mercy, a deeper mercy, that God is also working on his identity. Let's reflect on Jonah for a moment. What do we know about him? From 2 Kings, we know he's a prophet that declared a strengthening for Israel. In chapter 1, the sailors asked him four questions. They asked, what is your job? Where are you from? What is your country? And who are your people? And he gave one answer. A Hebrew, and I fear the God of heaven who made the seas and the dry land. He identifies deeply with the nation he prophesied victory for. He describes God using the words of Genesis 1. In the prayer we just read, he references something like 12 different psalms. He has them at his fingertips. In chapter 4, when he prays to God, he says, I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, which is nearly a quote of how God describes himself to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34. Jonah is steeped in the traditions of his people. Core to Jonah's identity is that he is a God expert. And his expert opinion is that God is in the Israel business. That God's mercy is for Israel. And it's a performance-based identity. The stronger Israel is and the weaker her enemies, the more Jonah is right about God. And I think he realized he was wrong about God as soon as he got the mission to Nineveh. It's hard for him to hear. So hard that he runs the other way rather than face it. I think Jonah believed that God is part of Israel's story and not the other way around. 
Jonah knows scripture forward and back, but he has not set down with the ramifications of God creating all people in his image, not just Israel. That Abraham's descendants will be a blessing to all people. That Israel exists not just for its own sake, but to be a light in the world. There are already some clues to Jonah's heart condition in the prayer. Jonah admits no wrongdoing. He wasn't in the water because he ran from God's mercy mission to Nineveh. He was there because God threw him in the sea. His prayer reached God in God's temple, a place in his nation. People who don't know God forsake God's love. Many translations render that forsake God's mercy. He's smarter than them. He gets it. He ends his prayer with salvation belongs to the Lord. This statement is right in the middle of the book, and I think the entire story hangs on it. Salvation belongs to the Lord is on Jonah's lips. But what's in his heart? What exactly does the prophet of Israel, who ran from God's mercy mission to Nineveh and is furious when it actually works, what does he mean when he says salvation belongs to the Lord? His identity requires that salvation belongs to Jonah and to Jonah's people. I think it's interesting that the fish vomits him out right at this point. That's not a very common word in the Bible. It appears half a dozen other times, and it's never about anything good. Half of those are in reference to throwing up related to some kind of foolish behavior, and the other half are about people, it's a metaphor, people being expelled from their land for their wickedness. It's like something about Jonah has made the fish sick. Continue in Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. I actually think there's a bit of humor here in that God and Jonah don't have a discussion about the whole fish thing. He just gives him the exact same orders as last time, and Jonah says, yes, this time I'm going to go. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. This is an odd little detail. We're told it's a big place, a three-day walk. Our ESV translators here have taken that to mean in diameter, but in Hebrew, it says something like, it was a three-day walk city, and Jonah took a one-day walk. The point being, I think, that he wasn't overly concerned about doing a thorough job on this mission. You can imagine he has a message for St. Louis and has decided that St. Charles is close enough. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Brian talked about this two weeks ago. This is not exactly a rousing call. Why is this happening? Who's going to do it? Is there anything that can be done about it? I I, kind of wonder, like, did he get up on a box or something? Or did he just sort of shout this to no one in particular? You can imagine that whatever he did, he, he turned around satisfied that he'd made the declaration and it would go unheeded. But the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
this would have been shocking. These pagans, Israel's sworn enemies, are having some sort of revival. I mean, they don't even know God. Some sort of awakening off the spark of Jonah's one-sentence sermon. The word reached the king of Nineveh. Note that Jonah didn't go to tell him himself. And the king arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Everyone, everyone, the animals are repenting. It is the law now in Nineveh. The king continues, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They turn from how they were, repent. Somehow, their identity, which was probably based on how much conquering they'd done and how many nations trembled at their name, didn't get in the way of finding out they were wrong. If we continue this violence, they think, we will reap what we sow. We're destroying the people around us, and we will be destroyed. And I love this. Who knows? Maybe God will relent. They don't know anything about God. No Genesis, no Exodus, no law, but they humbly trust him. It's as if the Ninevites are operating under a new identity. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And we'll go grab the first verse of chapter 4 to understand what's happening here. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. There's a footnote that has a little more literal rendition of the Hebrew. Let's look at that. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he was angry. This isn't just disappointing for Jonah frustrating. Something terrible has happened. For Jonah, something unjust, something evil. Jonah has just witnessed a miracle, an even greater display of God's power and mercy than his own salvation from the depths, an enormous city full of violence and evil turning to God. But instead of a prayer of thanksgiving, He's furious. And we see now what Jonah needs to repent of. The thing that his identity as an Israelite God expert can't bear to be wrong about. Jonah knew the Assyrians for their violence, for their empire, for the destruction they brought. But Jonah's desire to withhold God's mercy the mercy that his people and he himself had experienced. That desire came from the same place as Assyrian violence. It came from hatred. It came from selfishness. 
It came from the belief that we cannot flourish unless others fall. From believing that he, not God, decides what is just on the earth. And that's the darkness in Jonah's heart. God knows it will destroy Jonah. Destroy Jonah's people eventually, just as surely as Assyrian iron weapons would. Jonah thought he was standing up for his people, but he was becoming more and more like his enemy. And God is calling Jonah and his people to repentance. This book is about a call to repentance, and it is a call to repentance. This book says that we need God's mercy. And when we think we can decide who gets God's wrath, we need God's mercy all the more. Because you see, God's mercy is a worldwide event. We experience it together. Someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. That's two things, Jesus. He knows that. Because you see, for Jesus, our relationship with God, the mercy we receive, and our relationship with others, the mercy we give, aren't separable. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If I can experience God's mercy, the not receiving the consequences of my mistakes, but I still demand that others receive the consequences of theirs, have I really understood the mercy I received? There are some verses in the Bible that are hard to hear. You know, the kind, when we talk about them up here, we make that joke, you don't see that one on a lot of coffee cups. This one's on a lot of coffee cups and T-shirts and bumper stickers and crochet kits. But it would have been hard for Jonah to hear. If someone knows one Bible verse, it's probably that one. And it's right there. For God so loved the world. No qualifications. No limitations. Have you ever meditated on that? The world. Everyone you've ever read about. Everyone you've ever known. Some of you are thinking of someone. Yes, them too. <laughs> Do our lips and our hearts agree that salvation belongs to the Lord? So what to do? We're Jonah. The identities we choose, the ways we try to establish our worth in our performance-based identities are a barrier to repentance. We run away rather than facing when we're wrong. We sing God's praises when we escape unscathed and grumble when others don't get what's coming to them. Jesus says to repent because the kingdom is here. But how? In Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees who built their worth on the identity God expert. And Jesus was not shy about telling them all the things that they didn't really know. They did not like this. So much so that they were looking for a way to kill him. 
One day they were questioning Jesus, asking him for a sign to prove who he was. And Jesus told them, you'll get no sign but the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days in the fish, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be three days in the earth. You see, he knew they were plotting to kill him. So he tells them what sign they will get. That their plot will succeed. They will kill him. Except it will not have the result they hoped for. Rather than silencing him, it will bring God's mercy to the entire world. Because in his death, the consequences of all of our violence and selfishness and pride fall on Jesus instead of us. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah was sent to the capital of Israel's enemies, Nineveh of the Assyrians. And Jesus was sent to the capital of God's enemies, earth of the humans. But Jesus is an upside-down Jonah. Jonah was willing to die to prevent God's mercy from reaching God's enemies. But Jesus was willing to die to make sure that it did. You see, Jesus knows all about the performance-based identities collapse problem. So he offers us something that demolishes it. Jesus offers a new identity, an identity whose worth is not performance-based, recipient of God's mercy, the identity that Jonah and Nineveh had in common, church that we have in common. The worth of this identity is indestructible because it is Jesus' worth. And when you find your worth in this identity, you are Playing a different game. Try harder and be better are the worth measures of performance-based identities, and they mean nothing to the recipient of mercy. Church, your worth is the fact that the God of heaven, who made the seas and the dry land, saw you, saw your plight and loved you loved you so much that he gave his only son to die for you. That is who you are. And why can we trust this identity? Because Jesus fulfilled the second half of the sign of Jonah. Death simply could not hold him. The mercy that is ours in Christ is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. And if death cannot destroy Jesus, it cannot destroy the people who trust him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He proved it when he walked out of the grave. And when this is who you are, when you rest in and draw your worth from that identity, well, when you're faced with the fact that you could be a better spouse, You could be a better parent, a better friend. Good news. You're not shaken. You can repent because your worth doesn't come from those things. You can turn around, change your mind, 
Not because you're afraid or ashamed or think you might lose your worth, but because you can see Jesus who saved you. You can see where he's going. You can turn from the way you were going and follow him. Follow Jesus because he loves you. And that's who you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that you would spend so much for us. It's a little scandalous. Father, help us to rest in what you have done for us. Help us to embrace that Jesus' worth is ours now because of what Jesus has done, that we sit under your mercy, mercy as a gift that we cannot earn. And Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we still try to earn it, all the ways that we strive when the work is already done. We are yours, Lord. You have us. Thank you so much. You are so good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.